the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, March 16th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be going behind the scenes at Aldi with our business affairs correspondent, Mark Paul. What is the secret to Aldi's success in Ireland over these past 17 years? And later, economist Jim Power and our economics editor, Arthur Beasley, will assess recent economic data and the ESRI's calls for rules on mortgage lending to be eased. Before that, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where it will be delivered to your device each week for free. But now we'll start with Aldi. From a standing start in 1999, the German discounter has opened 123 stores here and captured almost 8% of the Irish grocery market with sales of close to 1 billion euro. Along with German rival Lidl, it is credited with transforming the way Irish people shop for their groceries and it has thrived in the austerity years. Last week, Mark Paul was granted unique behind-the-scenes access to Aldi and he spoke with one of its senior executives in Ireland. He now joins me in studio to reveal all. Um, Mark, first of all, you might just set the scene for his uh, if you like, about Aldi, when they came into the market. And also a lot of people get confused about the difference between Aldi and Lidl. Um, so perhaps you could just outline to us, uh, as you see it, the difference between the two. Well, the, 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 their operating models are, are, are both quite similar. Um, and, and obviously they both originate from Germany, um, and as everyone knows. Um, and they, they both focus on, on process and, and cost control and efficiency and logistics, which is really the, 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 at the core of their models. Is they, they both run uh, hugely reduced um, and numbers of product lines in comparison to their competitors. I mean, Tesco, for example, might have fifteen to 18,000 products in its stores. Um, Aldi only has 1,500. Um, so they both have finely honed models based upon uh, uh, distribution, logistics, and, and there's no real, you know, they take their time over introducing any new innovations to the market. Uh, and, and it's really about, uh, they, they both focus as well uh, very heavily on private label and own brands. Um, and they don't carry large amounts, uh, as people who shop there will know, they don't carry large amounts of, of branded goods. Um, and you might find Nescafe maybe, or maybe some Heinz Barley's tomato ketchup. Or something like that. You might find a couple of those things. It's sort of essentials that people like. But in general, um, their model is built around uh, process, own brands, logistics, um, and, and, and just finally home processes. Now, last week, I mean, both of them are highly secretive groups. They don't tend to open themselves up to the media too much. But last, uh, last week, you met with Finbar McCarthy, who an Irishman, and he's the group buying director for Aldi in Ireland. And you met him in their new store, newish store in Ternier, which is close to where I live. It's a very fine store, uh, I have to say. And it, it looks like it was uh, very expensively put together. So what, what did you discover from Aldi and Ternier? Well, Aldi and Ternier is sort of a new front line for the, for, for the, for the group. Um, it, it would be wrong to say Aldi and Lidl are going up market, but certainly they're trying to ca- capture more up market shoppers. They're not necessarily... Aldi's probably a little bit more premium than Lidl, isn't it? Uh, maybe maybe in terms of uh, um, in terms of its customer facing side, maybe it is slightly more polished perhaps than little. But well, I wouldn't say there's a huge amount in it. I'd still say they're pretty similar um, in a lot of ways. But you know, now that uh, you know during during the recession, obviously everybody was scrapping around looking for value. All customers are looking for value, and I think a lot of people who never would have considered shopping in Aldi and Little before did so during the recession because they had to because because uh, um, you know they had less money in their pockets and and. It's it's not you know it's not scoffed at anymore by by perhaps the middle classes to shop in Aldi and Little in the way it would have been in the past. Um, so this store in Terranure really is 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 one of Aldi's uh, forays into the middle class market. Um, 
it's an old uh, tram depot, um, um, a sort of a historical building in, in, in Terranure across in the church there um, that they've done up. Um, and it took them a long while to get it through planning, went all the way to Ambor Planala. Um, you know, it's got double height ceilings, the old tram depot ceiling on it, and um, very wide aisles. It's, it's 10,000 square feet. So it's about average for an Aldi sized store, but it will be small and smaller than, than other supermarkets. That's part of their model, by the way, is that um, by carrying less product lines and having smaller stores, people can get in and out um, much more quickly. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the sort of people that I saw shopping there uh, um, um, last Tuesday, um, a, lot of, a lot of women in their 30s and 40s, um, um, certainly they all look pretty well to do to me. Um, um, it was, uh, uh, you know, Aldi is focusing quite heavily at the moment on fresh food and organics and, and it's a real market trend at the moment. Healthy um, options. Healthy options. Dunn Stores is in that space and moving into that space now too. So, I mean, there was a lot of that, you know, sort of uh, quinoa and bulgar wheat salads and, um, and, you know, they sell products now like um, like coconut oil, which I didn't know until I got there. It's a big craze at the moment. Apparently people rub it on their teeth and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, put it in cooking and do all sorts of things that it's supposed to have all sorts of health benefits um, and, and, and Aldi has its own version of that which it sells for three ninety nine, which is probably less than a third of the price that you might pay for another brand of it in another store. Um, so they're moving very much into this fresh space uh, and, and, and in, the, in the store in, in Terranure when I was there um, um, they really had pushed that a lot but still Aldi is Aldi and, and you know they've, they've built up an 8% market share um, um, by uh, by creaming their competitors in price and they were still selling mm. 29 cent vegetables. For and example. I think one of the things you got a sense of was the very lean operating model that they have in each supermarket let's say compared to some of their competitors is only a handful of staff really at any one time isn't it? Right? That's right. I mean as I said it's 10,000 square feet so it is still a sizable operation and, 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 and you have probably that same amount of space again at the back um, um, but you only have six or seven um, um, Finbar McCarthy Thome, only six or seven uh, staff members on at any one time. Now that's that's not very many staff to cover um, a supermarket. That includes the tills, that includes the warehouse, that includes restocking the shelves. Now they're able to do this by, um, for example, and this is sort of something that discounters have done the world over for a long time, but um, um, because they, they, they have uh, such a reliance on, on private label products, they have complete control over the, the, the delivery of those products and the way they're made, made and packaged. So for example, they all the, the, the products, or most of them, come in boxes that can just be lifted up and placed directly onto the shelves so that the staff members don't have to pick up each individual jar of whatever it happens to be and place it on the shelf. That's time consuming, right? Um, so, so they have control over the packaging and that also allows them um, um, to insist on the amount of barcodes, for example, that are, that are, that are put in each item. Uh, each of the items, depending on its shape, uh, uh, has two barcodes in different parts of it. So basically, really just so that the staff can scan it through an awful lot more quickly. They have shelves then behind the tills where um, um, packing shelves where theoretically um, um, you know you're, you're not supposed to pack your stuff into your into your bags at the alley till and um, they prefer you to just you know fling it all into your into your uh, trolley and then bring it over to the packing shelf and do it there and it, it's all of these they sound like small things I suppose but when you have this sort of a model that is based on on very fine margins and, and very fine uh, uh, incremental efficiencies, these sort of things all add up, and it, it, they all add up to, uh, to 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 nearly one billion euro in sales a year. Yeah, now having said that, not everybody is happy uh, about the presence of Aldi and, and Lidl in the market. I mean, there were some protests. You mentioned it in your piece uh, by Cork farmers outside uh, Aldi and Lidl in, in Glanmire, and they're accusing them of sparking a race to the bottom on, on price. What did Finbar? What did Finbar have to say about that? 
Well, Finmar uh, McCarthy said that you know what 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 the, what the farmers in Glanmire were really protesting about, by the way, was was what's called a super six. Um, um, every week uh, uh, in their vegetables, um, and they also do it for meat, I think. Uh, but every week in their vegetables, um, um, Ollie picks six different items and sells them for you know what some people would say ridiculously low prices. On the day I was there, for twenty nine cents you could get eight apples, or for twenty nine cents you could get two courgettes, um, and like that's less than four cents per apple. You know, I mean, how, there's no way you can grow an apple for four no. cents. In Move it no. across the country and all of that. No, 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 no. You certainly can't. So the farmers um, um, in Glanmire, uh, it was a protest organised by the local uh, Irish farmers branch of the Irish Farmers Association. They just said that this was this was a race to the bottom. And and, and Finbar McCarthy's answer was, well, you know, our customers love it, and that we don't make the suppliers um, um, swallow any of the cost of these mm. promotions. So who's taking the hit? Is it Aldi taking the hit, or is it the farmer? Aldi, Aldi say they take the hit. They say that they still pay the full amount to uh, to, to the farmers. But I mean, look, obviously. Um, uh, Ollie's still going to uh, design its model in such a way that it makes profits, um, and and it doesn't like passing these costs on to consumers. So look, you know, you know, if somebody's selling four cent apples, maybe that does put pressure on all the other um, supermarkets, and maybe they in turn put pressure on their suppliers. Maybe it's an indirect effect, and um, but certainly the farmers aren't happy about it. Yeah. What about zero hour contracts? Do they operate them? Um, they what they, they their store staff get contracts um, of between fifteen and thirty hours. So I guess they're guaranteed at least fifteen and up to thirty hours. But they're also paid. Um, um, they're probably the highest paid um, retail floor staff in the country. They're paid. Their starting salary is eleven fifty per hour, um, which is equivalent to what's known as the living wage. Um, um, and and they're the only. And that's well above the minimum wage. It's well above the minimum wage, and themselves and little boat do that. Um, now their managers are are all very young, but very very high. Paid. Um, again, this is something that sort of it's it's, it's counterintuitive for. And a lot of them seem to be ex-army as well. That's true. Yeah. What's There's, going on there? The, well, I, I guess because you know, if if you've done fifteen or twenty years or whatever in the army and you come out and and, and you're looking for another career um, and you're used to you know to being drilled in, in processes and procedures and you're dedicated and and, and 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 you have a certain type of personality, it seems to work well with uh, discount retailers. They've about twenty, roughly twenty, um, um, ex-army officers in their senior management rank. Now, whether they're going there and recruiting them directly as as, as a policy, Finbar McCarty says they don't, um, but whether they're or doing it could that, just be coincidence. It could just be, or, or as he said it to me, it's probably just word of mouth. When you get four or five army officers in, um, um, you know, they talk to their, their, their old colleagues and, and, and suddenly they go, but but their management are paid very, very well. What percentage of their goods would actually be sourced in Ireland? They say uh, uh, over 50% of their goods are Irish and, and, and then they say over 50% of their sales, their revenues are also derived from Irish goods. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, they've 123 stores, little, probably not far off that, certainly between the two of them. I've got 145. Little. Okay. So we're talking of in excess of 250 stores between mm. them. These brands didn't exist in the Irish market, you know, 15, 17 years ago. Um, so they've been the winners. Who've been the losers uh, during that period? They take market share really from everybody. I mean, if you look back at, 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 what, at what, if you look back at the market, the grocery market share figures from about five, six years ago. Um, actually, actually, we had Superquin at that point. We had Superquin. Actually, funnily enough, we had Asda and Sainsbury because Asda and Sainsbury had 3% of the market about six years ago um, and when everybody was driving north and to buy their shopping. That's gone. Um, um, that's mainly at more down to the currency headwinds. But I suppose it's, it's probably cheaper to go to your local Little than it is to drive up the M1 um, 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 to Newry. Um, um, super value at the moment is now the number one with 25% of the market. Um, um, back then, super value had about 20%, um, um, but it has since bought Superquin, which had about 8%. So that's a combined 28 So they have taken a 
few points um, off the combined super value and the old super queen operation, which has since obviously been rebranded as super value. Dunstores is pretty much where it's always been at about 24%, but it's only come back in the last year or two and it's done that um, by by uh, by issuing uh, 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 reams and reams and reams of vouchers. Half an Amazon forest must have been cut down for all the vouchers that Dunstores have printed. So whilst Dunstores has maintained its market share at about 24%, we don't know what that's done to its margins and its profits. When you send out those sort of vouchers, it hits your profitability and Duns, uh, like like all the grocers really, um, or most of them. Uh, and Tesco's had a pretty jump. rough ride over the last few years. Tesco, Tesco has, has probably had the roughest ride of all. Tesco used to have about 27, 28% a few years ago. Uh, and now it's about to slip in. And, and, and it was also the biggest grocer in the country for, 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 for many, many years. Now it's on the verge of slipping into third spot. Um, and it is down to, I think, uh, about 24%. Um, um, and there's only a smidgen between it and Dunn's. It's had a very tough time, not just in Ireland, that has to be said. It's had a very, very tough time in the UK too, even as there's been an economic recovery in the UK. So maybe some of Tesco's problems um, um, are down to its model. Um, 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 certainly some of its problems are down to the discounters. They're hitting it here, but they're also hitting it hard in the UK. Yeah, of course, there was always the allegation, if you like, around Tesco that it was, uh, you know, its margins in Ireland were supersized compared to other markets that, you know, basically they were screwing Irish customers. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there always was, and you know, there was always that perception there. And, and, and I mean, a lot of the evidence was anecdotal because you can you can do that by comparing the prices of goods, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the price of, of of goods, similar goods in Ireland and the UK. But of course, as you said, they, they've never broken out their Irish profits, um, um, so we don't know. Yeah, okay. Now you can see why Aldi and Lidl have thrived in the austerity years when the recession hit because people were looking for, uh, you know, they were looking for value, etc. But the economy is back on a growth path now, seven point eight percent GDP growth um, last year. Do you think that they can continue to hold that market share and, and build on it or do you think people might go back to their old ways in terms of grocery shopping? I don't think people will go back to their old ways. Um, um, as, to, as to whether or not Little and Aldi can hold on to their market share, it really depends on how much they can adapt and change to change consumer tastes in the market. People you know, people aren't running around the place now looking for you know, Lithuanian bags of sugar or, 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 or you know, tea bags from, from the Baltics or whatever. Um, 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 people want a little bit of luxury now and they want a little bit of uh, they want to treat themselves I mean you know we've all just been through seven or eight years of uh, of sort of economic misery so um, you can see that now in what Aldi and Little uh, Aldi and you know Aldi that I've got more recent experience of uh, are, are trying to do they've they've brought in you know for example Aldi steaks I know Connor Pope our consumer affairs correspondent did a did a price did a, a, a sort of a test of steaks in, in, in recent times um, 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 which is something obviously that when people are treating themselves they like to do um, and the Aldi steaks come out number one and um, they, they've put a lot of money into this into, 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 into sourcing fresh products like that they've put a lot of money into their premium ranges um, and with their premium ranges are still reasonably priced of course so um you know they're they're trying to adapt to this to this change in the market of of of, of moving it. Uh, you know, everybody wanting to move slightly upscale in terms of their tastes. And if they can if they can sort of ride that wave, um, um, you know perhaps they will uh, they will continue to grow. They mightn't grow over the next couple of years as fast as they have done in the last five or six. Um, um, the bigger you get, the harder it mm. is to keep up that growth rate. Uh, did Finbar McCarthy give you any sense of how many shops he sees ultimately uh, in Ireland for Aldi, or whether or not they're going to have to change their format a little? 
little bit. It might have to become a bit more convenient. No, he said he. he I, I when I asked him that, he said that they have a very simple model for deciding when to open a store and where and 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 much like much of of what they do, it's there's a particular process to it. They open a store in in a given town, um, and and they know what sort of sales it should be able to handle. They have calculated beforehand when it breaches that barrier and when it sales when it gets busier than this threshold level, they'll open another one within a certain amount of miles of it and that'll, that'll affect obviously the original one which will shrink back a bit and then when both of those stores um, um, reinflate, so to speak back up to a level that they have previously calculated um, and they calculate well maybe this town can take or this region this maybe this whatever couple of square mile radius can take another one they'll pop another one in. He used Wexford as an example. Um, 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 they opened one Aldi in Wexford, I think it was in 2004, 2006. Within two or three years, uh, its sales had breached a particular level. They decided we'd open another one. Um, and within two or three years after that, um, 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 both of those stores, their sales breached a particular predetermined point and they opened another. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I mean, you can see again why they have so many army officers. It's a very, it's a very well-drilled mm-hmm. machine. You know? mm-hmm. Okay, so I suppose, look, you've had the opportunity to go in and uh, get under the skin of all the, a little bit. Are you a convert? Are we going to see the Paul household uh, filling up its shopping trolley and all the interior uh, in, in the weeks and months ahead? Um, well, the side of the town, the side of town that I come from, uh, to go down into Terranure, is uh, it's pretty bad for traffic. Um, um, I'm actually, my, my, fam- my family tends to do most of their shopping uh, in Little, actually. Mm, um, controversial. Um, 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 did um, you I, tell Finbar that? Uh, 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 I did, actually. I did, yeah. Uh, he tried to convert me, but... Uh, MC. Look, uh, maybe uh, look. Uh, we also do some shopping in Super Value. I guess maybe we're just a standard family in that in that we're not really attached to any one particular brand of store. And I think that's a feature of the market now. People do smaller basket shopping in more stores now. The idea that you just went to one supermarket and that was it, and you just did one shop, you fill up your trolley, whether it was for one week or whether you do it every two weeks, that trend is gone in the market now. People tend to go to to, to grocery stores more often, and for they might do they might still have one supermarket for their main shop. But they'll pick up other stuff in other supermarkets, and uh, and again they're all adapting to that uh, to that trend now as well. I mean, Ali, for example, two years ago brought in baskets for the first time. It's crazy to think they didn't have baskets before, but they only brought them in two years ago. But because they thought the time was only right two years ago, and um, so it's uh, you know uh, if they can keep adapting to the market, they'll do well. But uh, uh, you know, like. Like and they're especially barcoded or something, so you can't take them out of the store. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 their baskets are, are they're a sort of a hard, heavy plastic. Um, um, and and Finbar McCarthy said that lost baskets traditionally in retail are actually a big cost for retailers. You know, you, I mean, all you have to do is look in the Grand Canal, and you know, you'll see you'll see um, um, baskets every uh, every couple of hundred feet. Uh, um, um, so they're tagged. Yeah, they, uh, they, they, they 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 don't they they'll set off an alarm if they go outside the door. And their trolleys um, also their wheels lock if you uh, if you take them outside the uh, the front door. Of the, of the shop. Okay, Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014.
We'll move now to a raft of economic data in the past week or so uh, relating to Ireland. It ranges from soaring GDP growth in 2015 to an expansion of QE by the ECB and the ESRI's latest take on the economy. Joining me in the studio to make sense of all of this are economist Jim Power and the Irish Times economic editor Arthur Beasley. Jim, I'll start with you. Uh, it turns out that last year was even better than we'd previously thought in terms of economic growth in Ireland. Explain. Uh, GDP growth of um, 7.8%, GNP growth of 5.7%. Um, phenomenal, really. Tr- tremendous stuff, absolutely. Um, I haven't checked, but I suspect it was the fastest growing economy in the world last year. Uh, maybe there's some... Well, certainly in uh, Europe. In, in Europe, certainly, by a mile. Uh, but I, th- the question I suppose it poses is, at least for government, uh, what went wrong three weeks ago against that sort of economic backdrop to get kicked out of office unceremoniously. And the message was um, very much around the economy. It was it? very much around the economy. And I suppose the, the point is that those headline numbers don't really reflect what's going on in the ground. Um, every CSO briefing I go to on a quarterly basis, in fact, I missed last Thursday, but I, I always leave confused trying to interpret the numbers. Um, I mean, the one thing that stood out last week was the 28.2% growth in um, business investment spending, basically. Um, where where that came from, um, I think there's about 10 billion in there on intellectual capital, which are intellectual property. So, you know, it's very difficult to see how tangible that is. But I suppose the bottom line is that that sort of growth rate that was record, reported does not reflect what's going on on the ground in the economy. Um, mm. You know, while, What about the impact while, of multinationals on this? How distorting are they? Yeah, well, there was 31 billion uh, profit repatriation last year, so p- pretty significant. So that certainly distorts it as well. Um, the ESRI is saying today that um, the if you look at GNP, it's a better measure, but even at 5.7%, you know, I think that certainly higher than it felt in this economy. I think we're in a 3 to 4% growth economy. Um, if you look at, you know, the real components of activity, construction sector is coming back, um, consumer spending is coming back, but none, none of them are coming back in a dramatic fashion. Um, so it's, 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 it's a distorting story. And, mm. um, I, but I, isn't slowly, slowly, isn't that a better uh, much path better. for Ireland? Yes, ab- absolutely much better. Yeah, I mean, while, while we continue, we need another five years of steady economic growth. And it's only after another five years of steady economic growth, I mm. think that people will start to feel the real benefits of the economic recovery. You know, clearly the key things that need to be done now is to convert this sort of growth into an improvement in public services, improvement in infrastructure, um, more money back into people's pockets. In other words, you know, disposable incomes rising. It's when those things start to happen, and of course the housing crisis, Mm. but when those things start to happen, um, the sort of growth rates we're seeing at the moment really start to resonate with people. But clearly it's not resonating with people at the moment. Um, Most people, unless you're in... I suppose, a segment mm. of the Dublin market. Uh, for most people, it does not feel like an economy that's yeah, growing yeah. at 7-8% per annum. Arthur, one of the things underpinning Irish economic growth over the past uh, little while has been quantitative easing by the ECB. And last week, um, they expanded that programme significantly beyond what many analysts had predicted. And you covered that story. That's right. I think Mario Draghi in Frankfurt, I think, uh, rather took people by surprise at the level of quantitative easing. The monthly bond repurchases by the European Central Bank were increased by one third from 60 billion to 80 billion. Now, that's really quite uh, significant. They're also going to buy uh, high level corporate non-bank debt 
So the scheme is being expanded and all of this will, on the face of it, it will underpin the super low borrowing costs which are greatly to the benefit of the outgoing government and whatever government comes in to run the country in the next period. Yeah. Uh, Jim, most people haven't a clue what QE is all about uh, and I'm not going to ask you to explain it now but how important is it in underpinning the Irish economic story at the minute? Um, I think QE per se hasn't had that much impact on Ireland. I mean, Ireland has been the beneficiary of four external forces. There are some are related to QE, definitely, but really the strength of the US and the UK um, has benefited Ireland um, disproportionately over the last couple of years. The weakness of the euro last year um, gave a major benefit to Ireland, particularly on the tourism side and the food export side. Um, the collapse in oil prices we've mm. seen over the last 18 months. And of course, the monetary policy, including interest rate policy that's been pursued by the European Central Bank. Um, quantitative easing, I suppose, has impacted on the cost of borrowing here. You know, when we see 10-year yields in Ireland under 90 basis points, you know, quantitative easing has certainly had an impact here. But I think other factors have been more important to Ireland. And indeed, at a European level, um, it's debatable what sort of impact quantitative easing has had to date. Um, I think it's been minimal in terms of real economic activity. Um, but does that mean it shouldn't have happened? No, it doesn't. I'd hate to see Europe if quantitative easing hadn't uh, been in place over the last 12 months uh, because it was it was quite extraordinary last Thursday. We got in Frankfurt, we got the European Central Bank um, introducing further measures of desperation. Um, and in Dublin, with the CSO releasing uh, growth rates of 7.8%, talking about contrasting fortunes. But uh, getting back to the euro area, I mean, the, the European Central Bank um, is clearly clutching at straws at this stage to try and reinvigorate economic activity. Um, and I think the, the, the whole eurozone um, economic experiment and indeed the EU experiment is now starting to come under serious pressure and I would really question its long-term sustainability at this stage. Arthur? Well, I mean, I, I think Jim is right. I mean, quantitative, quantitative easing isn't the only factor. But I mean, if you look at a, a country which is paying out €7 billion Euro to service the debt, the very fact that this policy will continue and the very fact that super low interest rates have been signalled for a long time to come serves to give some security that we're not looking in the immediate sense at any big uplift in that debt servicing cost. And any big rise in that would seriously constrain the government in terms of all the other things that need to be done after so much retrenchment. I think that point is valid. I mean, in respect of the viability of the European Union project and the Eurozone, I think it is clear. I mean, the, I mean, we are now into, you know, we're approaching the end of a decade of turmoil. The turmoil started in 2007. We're now in well into 2016. It's quite clear that these extraordinary ECB interventions will continue into next year. I can recall covering my first European marking, which was a meeting of Eurozone finance ministers back in September of 2009. And this was one year after Lehman Brothers, one year after the Irish Banking Guarantee. And the topic, the top topic on the agenda at that particular meeting, which was in Sweden, was the exit strategy from all they had done one year previously. They were seriously talking about an exit strategy. I mean, we're a long way from that yet. And that illustrates really that, that the struggle continues to assert some kind of control over the situation. It's interesting what you're saying about the, um, the European project, shall we call it that, uh, Jim? Um, you're suggesting that it, uh, you know, it, it might all begin to fragment and fall apart. And uh, obviously we have a Brexit referendum coming up in June. 
And I'm increasing, I don't know about you, but I'm increasingly getting the sense that the ordinary man on the street doesn't really see what's in it for them to be a part of the European Union, whatever about high level business or admirals or generals or, uh, you, you know, some senior politicians. Just the ordinary man on the street just doesn't quite get what, what's yeah, in it. For I, I, I think, um, you know, there are a number of challenges to the Eurozone and indeed to the wider EU project. You know, the economic backdrop that we've just described, um, you know, is dire. And the fact that interest rates are down at these levels, the fact that the European Central Bank did what it did last week in terms of quantitative easing and interest rates is just indicative mm. of extreme economic weakness. OK, so that that's one point. The second point is obviously the migration crisis and the ability or the, the manner in which Europe is dealing with that migration crisis. You have the German view at one extreme, you have the Hungarian view at the other extreme and you have the rest somewhere in between. Uh, but certainly in terms of addressing the problem in a coordinated manner or coherent manner, it just is not happening. So I, I think that situation is really, really dangerous. And the third issue is Brexit. Um, if Britain were to leave the European Union, I think the European Union would be a fundamentally weaker entity without Britain. And of course, it also opens the possibility that if one country exits, well, who's next? Others could follow, I mean, yeah. you, you could look at Italy, for example, um, at some stage in the next couple of years, deciding, is this worth it? So the whole thing could unravel very, very quickly unless they're very careful. In terms of the Brexit referendum um, itself, you know, my gut instinct would have been six months ago that when push comes to shove, uh, the British electors would vote to stay in out of the fear factor, which is what happened in the Scottish referendum last May. Uh, but as time goes on, you become less convinced about that because the anti-EU uh, side of the debate are certainly associating the migration crisis with EU membership. And the simplistic message is um, if you want to prevent Britain from becoming um, drowned in migrants, uh, you leave the European Union. And, and, and the argument has become, you know, very messy, very political. And it's fine for business interests to stand up and say it would be really bad news for the UK economy to exit and that Britain's best interests are served by staying in. But that's not resonating with the man on the street, no. you know, so. Jim, are you in the camp that if Britain uh, decides to leave the EU that Ireland should follow? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, you see, the... The, 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 the issue is we can't say with any certainty uh, what Brexit would mean for Britain or indeed for Ireland. And the reason why we can't is because on June 23rd, if the British vote to exit the European Union, um, they will then begin a two-year negotiation process. At least two years. At least two years to see what Britain's relationship will be with the European Union. So if Britain exited and then negotiates a trade deal with the European Union, I can't see how it would benefit Ireland leaving. Uh, but on the other hand, if Britain fails to negotiate some sort of deal with the European Union, if we discover two years down the road that Britain is locked out of European markets, then it starts to become a serious issue for Ireland. I wouldn't expect it to come to that, I have to say. I think Britain um, will sign some sort of trade deal along the lines of Switzerland, Norway, Iceland um, or even Canada you know, which recently signed a free trade agreement with the European Union. The ironic thing about the whole argument is that for countries like Norway, Iceland, Switzerland to enter and access the European market, they have to sign up to most of the rules and regulations. They have to contribute to the budget. And that's what the British are trying to get away from. And they've yeah. no say. And they've no say. And they've no say. Absolutely. Argument. Yeah. 
Uh, I think there's a couple of interesting, very, very interesting points there. I mean, I think the two-year uh, issue is uh, very, very relevant because by the letter of the Lisbon Treaty, if there is no agreement on the mode of departure within two years, and two years is only 104-odd weeks, mm. well, then they automatically go. And the whole thing is thrown into uncertainty. And the other question is that if there is to be a negotiated exit, ambitious, because it has to be done within two years, the question then arises, what are the exit terms? And it seems to me that the countries which remain, which is every other country in the EU, uh, is not going to be in their interest. You you could say that it may be in the interest to give them favourable exit terms, but then those same leaders making that agreement could very well come under pressure within their own politics to uh, bring their own country out of the EU and to uh, do away with all of those bits of the European Union they don't like and to simply enter into a trade arrangement which preserves the most favourable economic elements. So it's very, 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 very complex. Yeah, okay. uh, we'll leave that there. We'll move on to the uh, the latest ESRI uh, economic bulletin and um, they talk about property-related uh, matters in, in a couple of aspects. They say there's, there's now uh, fewer than uh, 100,000 uh, accounts in negative, e- negative equity, property mortgage accounts in, in negative equity, which I guess is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they're also calling for an easing of, or seem to be calling for an easing of the macroprudential rules from the central bank. Uh, in other words, how much people can borrow from their banks and the rules are, around that. What, what do you think of that? Jim? Well, um, I have to say February of last year when the central bank implemented those new lending regulations, um, I would have been 100% supportive um, but you're not now. I, no, I am. I think it was the correct thing to do because the role of the central bank is to make sure that the banking system is as resilient as possible in the event of, in the face of some external shock. And that's exactly where the Irish banking system was not back in 2007 when its ability to deal with the external shock uh, was non-existent and the banking system was wiped out of the, blown out of the water. Mm. So by... But unfortunately, imp- by, it's had by, a huge yes, consequence on first-time buyers, particularly by in imposing Dublin. regulations like that, you are definitely making the banking system sounder. But it was obvious when those measures were introduced, there would be negative consequences or unintended consequences, however however you want to describe it. And they're clear, first-time buyers in the Dublin market particularly would find it very difficult to get on the ladder. Um, If you had wealthy parents who could put up the deposit for you, great. If you didn't, tough luck. Um, people were pushed into those people then will be pushed into a rental market that's already under serious pressure and of course people will be pushed back out into the broader commuter belt again those were very foreseeable consequences but that was not the central bank's problem and should not be the central bank's problem that is the role of government to address those issues and there is a simple um, response it is to increase housing supply. Okay, increasing housing supply isn't that simple. No. But, but in theory, you know, that, that's what needs to be done. How do you do it? I think a multifaceted approach is required. Um, I do believe that um, planning needs to be looked at. Um, I believe that we need to look at the economics of house building to see what sort of incentives developers might require to deliver housing in the Dublin area. I think a vacant site levy represents a good idea. But I also think um, rather than turning around and starting to adjust at the central bank's um, lending regulations. Um, I think we should look at a product that has worked well in other jurisdictions, particularly in Canada, and that's mortgage insurance. So it should become obligatory, in my view, um, for every first-time buyer. Mm. Or, but the central bank looked at that, and it's it's basically not interested in it as a product. Yeah, and I ask you the question, why? Um, it's a good product. I'm not trying to sell it, okay? <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong here. But it does allow 
banks lend mm. up to 100% first-time buyers without incurring extra risk. Okay, um, and, and that's the beauty of mortgage insurance. So if, if a borrower is a sound lending proposition, uh, the bank can lend them up to 100%, provided at the percentage in mortgage yeah. above 60 or 70% is insured. But part of the problem is social housing. Is A big part of the problem is social housing. And, you know, we can talk about first-time buyers and mortgage rules and so on and so forth, but there are a lot of people who can't afford to buy uh, houses. They need yeah. help. They need but, social but housing. But the problem is, Karen, unless you address private housing provision, you're not going to address social housing provision because those people in the private sector who want to buy a house, if they can't buy a house, if they're forced into the rental market, they're taking potential social housing mm. out of the system. So you cannot address one or the other. You've got to address yeah. both. Right, so on that point, in, in terms of social housing, what's wrong with the state building some houses again? We, we really haven't done it in any meaningful way for a long number of years. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong, for, wrong with it. And that, that's what the state is there for. That's what social housing is there for. And the state pays out huge volumes of money in uh, re- re- rental support for, for tenants in, in private accommodation. Now, there was a, you know, a, a, a practice introduced uh, 20 or 30 years ago under which uh, tenants had the, the right, were given the right to buy out their own homes. That's all very well. But the problem then was the state wasn't building homes to, to replace that supply. And we, I mean, you know, we have a growing population and, you know, the population continues to grow all of the time. And we've had a virtual shutdown at the level of social housing. And it seems to me, you know, there's a major problem there and there's a major, major problem at the level of local authorities. Yeah. We'll move on to Apple now. And Arthur, this is a story that you've uh, covered uh, at some in, in some depth uh, over the past uh, number of months. Uh, Apple told the European Parliament uh, this week that as far as they're concerned, they've paid Ireland every red cent that they owe in tax. And this kind of is counterintuitive almost to the narrative that they owe us uh, perhaps up to 19 billion uh, euro, according to the likes of Ruth Coppinger. What's what, you know, where's the truth lie in all of this? Well, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is there's a state aid investigation underway right now for many, many months. This is at the behest of DG competition within the European uh, Commission. Uh, the latest news from our Brussels correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, in the newspaper today is that Brussels has sought yet more information from Dublin. This is an inquiry which is ongoing Uh, since the year before last. Uh, There's no light at the end of the tunnel. The 19 billion figure comes from JP Morgan, who are stockbroker to Apple. Uh, They produced this figure on a back-of-the-envelope basis in which they said if it was that Apple had to pay 12.5% in respect of every single euro of profit declared by the two relevant Irish entities, well then that is... The, the figure you will come up with. But they did say that was very back of the envelope. And the fact is that Apple would say that, look, at the agreement it had with revenue was entirely in keeping with Irish statute at the time. And the revenue and the government here say that the, there was no special uh, dispensations uh, granted to Apple. Now, I mean, where is it all going? Uh, very difficult to say. There is some speculation in the business community that there might be some kind of a settlement as between Apple. A figure of less than one billion has been mooted. The sense is that uh, that kind of a settlement would be would deliver a sum, an appreciable sum to the uh, European authorities to be able to say they'd had something of a victory. It would enable Apple to say that uh, 
there is no threat to the massive cash pile within the company, but it would leave dub- the Dublin authorities without the option of challenging any abs- adverse ruling in court because there would be no re- ruling, there would be a settlement. Yeah, Jim, a big check from Apple, I guess, will be helpful, especially for a new government coming in. Um, they might have uh, many ways in which they could spend it, but it might be counterproductive in the long term, perhaps, with Apple, do you think, and other multinationals? Well, uh, if you look at global corporation tax developments and you look at the debate on BEPs, etc., um, I think clearly Ireland's competitive advantage in the corporation tax front is going to be gradually eaten away over the coming years. Um, and I, uh, one of the, I suppose, concerns for me out of a British exit from the European Union would be that Ireland would lose an important ally around the EU table in relation to def- the defence of our corporation tax situation because we would then become, I think, exposed to significant pressure from France and Germany. And it, one of the things we got out of the banking inquiry, if nothing else, was the pressure that was coming to bear on Ireland um, in, relation, uh, in the run-up to our bailout uh, to do something with our corporation tax system. So I, I think, you know, the corporation tax model as it applies in Ireland, um, you know, notwithstanding what's going to happen with Apple, you know, it is definitely going to come under increasing pressure. And that's why it is so essential. And I, and I think it's so depressing in the election campaign uh, that there was no real recognition of the big challenges facing Ireland um, in the short, medium to long term. And we saw old-fashioned auction politics, uh, which I found totally dissoluting. And it came from virtually all parties. You know, there was... There was particularly Fine Gael. <laughs> no, particularly Fine Gael. Abolishing the USC. Completely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the first day of that campaign um, with the introduction of the fiscal space... Um, and basing an election campaign on a concept as stupid as the fiscal space, I just found utterly depressing. Mm-hmm. And it just descended into farce then over the next three weeks. So, uh, so you know, if you look at where Ireland is today, despite the good growth numbers, there's a lot of challenges we still have to work through, not least the 300,000 direct and indirect jobs that are dependent on the multinational sector. You know, and, and the challenge to those jobs from future changes to the corporation tax environment. Arthur, is there a danger that the current drift in the system from having a lack of a government at the minute, we're not getting any policy decisions uh, made at the moment until we have a new government formed. Is there a danger that that might become a real problem for us and that the economic gains we've made over the last couple of years, some of them could seep away? I think there is. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, look at the the Brexit referendum is only a hundred days away. I mean, if, uh, last week it was fifteen weeks away. Now it's fourteen weeks away. Um, I mean, it could be uh, ten or nine weeks away by the time we get a government. Um, the the result of that referendum uh, is not in the power of whomever. Uh, is is uh, sitting in control in Marion Street, but whoever is, is in control in Marion Street is going to have to deal with it. And there's a whole pile of other issues. And, you know, it seems to me that uh, it's all very well. Uh, I mean, I think the, the comfort of very strong economic growth figures and strong tax revenues gives the political system the, the space to have debates around doll reform and all the other things that we're hearing about, you know, the practicality or otherwise of a rotating Taoiseach. But, I mean, there's a whole pile of decisions that need to get taken. And sooner or later, sooner preferably, the politicians are going to have to decide what is going to happen because you can't have a government which is on, you can't have an administration which is on political autopilot, which is exactly what we have. Jim, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, I was just, uh, I mentioned earlier four external factors that have benefited Mm. Ireland 
you know, disproportionately over the last couple of years. Two of those are starting to deteriorate. Uh, Sterling has lost 8% of its trade-weighted value since November, largely because of Brexit uncertainty. That certainly has the potential to get worse. That's one, you know, pressure that's coming to bear. The second one is in the UK budget today. Um, the Treasury has revised down its forecast mm. for UK growth to 2% this year. So the UK economy experiencing a slowdown. So there are two slightly worrying signals for Ireland. That's why um, I would be a total fiscal conservative um, and I would vote for parties who are fiscally conservative. Um, Well, I'm just going to ask you both very quickly to make make your prediction. Minority government or grand coalition? I think it would be a minority government supported by Fianna Fáil, but my preference would be that Fianna Gael should not go near government, that every party that describes itself as left of centre, including Fianna Fáil, should be forced to form a government. Okay, Arthur, grand coalition Um, or minority government? At this point, I would say minority government, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see another election. I think there's a really serious problem around what happens with the next budget. And is it really uh, practicable to have a government on the go on on a grace and favour basis with an opposition uh, who can choose to support legislation or not? And you'd have an administration, essentially, which would have a gun to its head at at every point. And that makes difficult decisions even more difficult. And it's the difficult decisions that matter most. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Jim Power, Arthur Beasley and Mark Paul for joining me in the studio. John Casey produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.